0: What I realized when I got into multifamily was, multifamily is very much a team sport. Nobody does everything in multifamily. Like, right? if you're finding deals, that's a full-time job. If you're raising money, that's a full-time job. If you are managing contractors or managing the property, that's a full-time job. If you are dealing with legal issues, compliance issues, um, accounting stuff, that's a full-time job. Everything in multifamily is a full-time job because these are large assets.
1: You're listening to The Azria Show. If you're looking for quality real estate investing information that you can trust, you've found it. Stay tuned and join the tens of thousands of members that have already benefited from Azria, your home for education, market information, support, and networking opportunities that will advance your real estate investing career.
2: Great State of Arizona. Welcome to another episode of the Azria show. We have a very very special guest with us today who hails from Sarasota, Florida, a big contributor to Bigger Pockets, and we want to welcome uh Jay Scott to the show. But before we do that, we always got to welcome our executive director and co-host of the Azria show, Mike Delpreet. How are you, Mike?
1: Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Thanks for uh doing another great show Marcus with me.
2: Ah, thank you, man. No problem. You always make, uh, you always make it easy for me. <laughs> so, all right, well, let's jump right in. We have Jay Scott, you know, again, from Sarasota, Florida. You have more than likely seen him at BP Con, um, all over bigger pockets. Uh, he's done hundreds of fix and flips, but now he's focused on large multifamily, but I'm going to let Jay introduce him own self, his own self. So Jay, how are you doing today, sir? I am doing well. Thanks for having me, Marcus. I'm thrilled to be here. Not a problem. Not a problem, man. For those who may not know, and I don't know if they've been under a rock or wherever they've been, kind of introduce us to Jay Scott.
0: Yeah. So uh, I am a former engineer, business guy, corporate guy. Back in 2008, my wife and I decided to uh, to leave the the corporate world and the tech world to start a family. And We were looking for something that would allow us to live the lifestyle we wanted to live, kind of get that work-life balance, be able to raise kids, not have to miss any soccer games or piano recitals or those sorts of things. So 2008, we quit our jobs. We moved from the West Coast to the East Coast, and we kind of fell into flipping houses. So summer of 2008, we flipped our first house. Probably wasn't the best time to do that, but it was a great time to learn. I figure if, if we could be successful doing it. Back during 2008, we could probably be successful anytime. And we scaled from there. And over uh, the next eight years or so, we flipped about 450 houses. And then in 2017-ish, 18-ish, uh, we moved. Uh, I moved more into the uh, multifamily space. So syndicating large commercial multifamily deals. And that's what I've been doing since uh, 2018. Perfect, that's perfect.
1: That's like a prime time. Like you, when you got in to large multifamily, was that like a sweet spot in time, or anything you want to talk about that era?
0: It, it would have been nice to get in a couple of years earlier. Um, <laughs> certainly, uh, you, you get in a situation where, unlike with flipping, where typically whatever the market is the day you buy the house, the market's not going to be too much different when you sell it because if if you do a good job, you're you're flipping in thirty days, maybe three months. Even a huge flip shouldn't take more than four or five months uh, mm-hmm. if if you're if you have your processes down. But in the multifamily space, typically a deal is going to span anywhere from three years to five years, maybe even seven years. And so you don't really know what you're getting into when you buy. And so we bought some stuff in 2019, 2020 that we're still holding. Uh, Luckily, we were were very conservative when we purchased Mm it. Uh, Properties are doing really well. But I know a lot of people that bought stuff back in 2019, 2020 that are not in great shape today because obviously the, the market's kind of moved out from under us. And, and mm-hmm. if, uh, if you didn't think about the fact that what's happening today might have been in the cards back then, it's very possible that you bought suboptimally or you got the wrong type of debt in place or you got the wrong type of equity in place. And now you're sitting on a property that, uh, that might be struggling or as, 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 has a risk of struggling in the near future.
2: Okay. Cause that's, that's what we're hearing quite a bit when it comes to the multifamily is, you know, some of the operators that purchase, like you said, in 2019, 2018, 2020, now that debt is about to reset and the numbers may not work out the way they should now. So if a person is going to get into the large multifamily space is now a good time to get into that space.
0: Yeah, I think now is a perfect time, actually, because again, if you're looking three to five years out, where's the market likely to be in three to five years? So um, I figure if we're heading in toward to a recession now, and some people think we've been in a recession for the last six or eight months, I'm not going to argue with that. You can make a case either way, Um, but if you believe that 2022 is going to be worse, typically what we found, at least historically speaking, is that the Fed um, raises and lowers interest rates in cycles. And over the last 60 years, we've had 10 cycles of the Fed raising interest rates, that putting us into a recession, and the Fed starting to lower interest rates. Typical turnaround from the time Fed starts to raise interest rates to the, till the Fed starts to lower interest rates is about 2.2 2 years. Longest has been about 3.1 years, I think. So okay. if you look at the Fed starting to, uh, to raise rates back in March of, of 2022, and I'm not saying this was the typical cycle for, for mm-hmm. the Fed. But but if you look at them starting to raise rates back in the beginning of 2022, and you kind of uh, 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 project out based on what we've seen in, in historic rate hike cycles, what we can expect to see is that sometime in 2024, we'll probably see rates start to drop. We'll probably see a, a, a recession here in 2023 and mm-hmm. uh, and uh, rate drops starting the beginning or middle of twenty twenty four. And typically we see rate drops much faster than we saw the same hikes. So if it took us a year to get from zero percent to four percent, it might only take us six months to get back down to uh, to a half percent or one percent in federal f- funds rate.
2: Perfect analysis. um, and that's that's I mean, you're spot on, Jay, because that's kind of what I've been researching and what I've been hearing. um. So yeah, guys, you hear from Jay, if it's something that you're interested in getting into, probably need to start looking into multifamily right now. So Jay, let's, let's kind of go there with this topic. So you went from fixing and flipping, you know, over 400 homes. How did you get into the multifamily space?
0: So I got completely burned out from flipping houses. I mean, it was a great income. It was a fun thing to do for a couple of years. But after eight years and and several hundred houses, it was just tiresome. I mean, I was just burned out. I was ready to do something different. I actually thought about going back to the tech world for a little while. I do some advisory work in the tech space. I thought maybe I'll, I'll go and do some consulting or advisory work. And uh, 2018, a friend of mine, Ashley Wilson, who had been in the multifamily space for a while, basically said to me, hey, instead of looking outside of real estate, uh, why don't you come work with me for a little while, learn the business, see if you like it, maybe you'll like multifamily better than, than single family. So 2019-ish, uh, I, I basically said, okay, I'll come work with you for a year, we'll, we'll see what happens, you can teach me the business, you'll have access to me and my network and my money and my time and my effort and my knowledge um, and mm-hmm. she said, great, I'll teach you the business in return. And so, uh, 2019, we ba- basically spent a year together, um, where she taught me the business. I helped her in her business. And what we realized was we had a lot of complementary skills. We worked really well together. Uh, we had kind of the same outlook on life and family and business and the future. And 2020, we said, Hey, why don't we partner up? Why don't we formalize this? And so in 2020, we became business partners, um, she had started a company called Bar Down Investments. I became a partner in Bar Down Investments and we've been growing it for the last couple of years.
2: Wow. Wow. It's the partner of networks, right? Partner of those relationships. Um, very, very key. Very, very important because maybe if you didn't have that conversation, you'll probably still do, be doing some consulting in the tech space and not have ever entered into the multifamily space.
0: Yeah. What what I found is that relationships are really what helps people get to the next level Um, There Mm. are lots of things in this business that we can learn on our own and we can do on our own. But at the end of the day, uh, when you're working with other people who are smarter than you, who are more experienced than you, um, who might have more money or more time or more expertise, whatever it is, um, they're going to pull you up and they're going to allow you to get to wherever you want to get to faster and more efficiently. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I may have fallen into multifamily at, at some point myself, but it would have taken me two or three or five times longer to really scale up. Uh, than if I found somebody like I did who could basically teach me the business and, and, and get me up and running in, in less than a year. So I certainly recommend to anybody out there that's learning to, to, who's interested in learning to do something new, find somebody that's already doing it, figure out how you can add value to that person. Um, and then in return, ask them to, to help by adding value and teaching you. And it's, this business is all about synergies. And if you can, if you can help other people, they can help you, everybody achieves what they need to achieve.
1: And I think another great learning lesson about that one year that relationship um outside of the leverage or the the, the um part of learning from from them is um the complementary skills, right? So I was always taught from a mentor, hey, before you bring on a new partner, wait eight to ten months, get the let the skeletons come out the closet, figure things out. So a lot of people when they get in there into jump into real estate, they get excited with a friend, they're like, we should be partners and we should just do this deal or whatever it is. But I think that's a huge um, learning lesson there, getting to know each other for the first year.
0: Yeah, and one of the big mistakes I see a lot of people making, they, they get into this business and they think, okay, um, I'm just starting out. I don't have much money. I don't have much knowledge, but I, I, maybe I have a background doing contractor work, or maybe I have a background um, doing something related to real estate. And so what they do is they go and they start meeting other people who have similar backgrounds. So yeah. they'll meet other people that don't have a lot of experience or money, but they they were contractors before. They become best friends. They're like, yeah, yeah we have the same experience. We, we have the same background. We know the same stuff. Let's partner up. And that's actually the worst thing for for a partnership when everybody has the same strengths and weaknesses. Uh, I don't need somebody that has the same strengths I do. I need somebody that that can cover my weaknesses. And likewise, they need somebody that can cover their weaknesses, which might be my strengths. So what I found is that the best partnerships are when the two people are, um, at least from a skills standpoint, very different. Now, from a personality standpoint, you, you should be working with people that, that you know and like and trust. You should be working with people that kind of have the same values you do, that have the same ethical values you do, that have nope. the same principles you do, and also have the same goals you do. But from a skill set standpoint, we should be looking for people that are just the opposite of us so that those complementary skills can kind of fill us out and, and, and turn two pieces into a whole
2: very true very true i love it love it and what you said was very key at the end you take those two pieces and make a whole you know because you may have, to, like you said, and I'm not going to be the dead drum, but if you have the same skill sets as someone else, you know, these guys are just going to be masters in that same area and not be able to expand yourself and grow into other areas. So Jay, what was one of those key things that your partner taught you when you got into uh multifamily that you say, you know what, I'm glad that I really learned this. What was that? What was that one thing that That triggered and gave you that aha moment to say, man, I'm really glad I partnered with this person and learned this.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, the reason I'm really glad I got into multifamily was simply because in the single family space, we tend to try and do everything ourselves. Um, Single family is it's not rocket science. Um, and if you've got the drive and you've got the energy, there's no reason you can't find the deals. You can't find the contractors, manage the contractors, manage the renovations. Um, if you're renting it, do the property management yourself. If you're selling it, do the listing and selling yourself, basically do everything yourself. Uh, the problem is you're going to burn out if you do that. Not only are you going to burn out, but you're probably not great at everything. You might be great at finding deals, but you're not great at the, the renovations. Maybe you're great at the renovations, but you're not great at the marketing on the back end or the property management. Few of us are, are good at all of those things. Most of us are good at one or two things. But what I realized when I got into multifamily was multifamily is very much a team sport and nobody does everything in multifamily. Yep. Like If you're finding deals, that's a full-time job. If you're raising money, that's a full-time job. If you are managing contractors or managing the, the property, that's a full-time job. If you are dealing with legal issues, compliance issues, um, accounting stuff, that's a full-time job. Everything in multifamily is a full-time job because these are large assets. I mean, if you think about it, if you buy a 20 or 30 or $50 million apartment complex, that's like running a 20 or 30 or $50 million business. Correct. And there are very few people that are running a, a 20 or 30 or $50 million business without employees or partners or other people to help them. And it's the same way in the multifamily world. And so it really allowed me to focus on those one or two areas that I was good at, that I enjoyed doing, where I could provide value and then let other people focus on all those other things that I hated doing. But I was doing it myself in the single family world, just because that's how we do things. And multifamily space, I said, nope, I'm going to focus on these one or two things that I'm great at. And Ashley's going to focus on the one or two things she's great at. We're going to hire employees to focus on the other stuff that we're not great at, or we bring in partners, or we bring in co-general partners, whatever it is. And basically everybody does what they're really good at and what they enjoy. And every day you get up, and you look forward to to going to work because you're doing stuff that you're good at and you enjoy.
1: And what are you good at?
0: So, for me, the stuff that I really love and that I found that I'm really good at is the stuff that's kind of not boots on the ground mm-hmm. stuff. i don't I don't like finding deals. I don't like managing contractors. I don't like managing prop, uh, uh, properties. Okay. Uh, what I like is the stuff behind the computer. So I'm really good at underwriting. I love underwriting, uh, putting together uh, models, business models and analytical models, um, and, and capital raising. So I found okay. that I'm really, really good at raising money. And so my part of the business is I'm focused on building the models that we use to, to, to vet the properties that we're looking at, and then raise the money for those properties. Ashley's part of the business is finding the deals and managing the deals and, and making sure that that the business plan is carried out. So she's kind of the boots on the ground and I'm kind of the 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 nerd behind the uh, behind the computer screen.
2: That's Love good. It. Those complementary skill sets really yep. work work well together. Exactly. Um, yeah. So what do you look for when you're when you're underwriting those deals? Cause we're going to stay in your kind of your skill set. What do you look for when you're underwriting those deals?
0: Yeah. So well, let, I me,
2: let me let me stop you real quick, Jay. Let me, let me, let me back up first, just like, you know, starting in, in single family, what do you, what comes first, the deal or the money? Do you go out and raise the money and say, Hey, this is a model of our next project, or do you try and secure the project and then go and raise the money? Let's start there first.
0: Okay. So uh, in the single family space, typically finding the deal is if you know what you're doing, a couple week task. And finding Mm -hmm. the money might be a couple week or a month task. Maybe it's even two months, maybe it's three months. But in the multifamily world, uh, things work a little bit differently. So finding deals, if I go into a new market, I might spend six or 12 or 24 months building relationships with brokers before I find a 150 or 200 unit apartment complex. That's not the kind of thing that even if you're good at it, if you're going into a new market, you're not going to find a deal in a week or two or five or 10. Um, This really is a multi-month or even a multi-year effort. So you have to build those relationships. You have to build that deal flow. On the money raising side, same thing. Um, I can go to a bank and borrow $100,000 or $500,000 pretty easily. But if I need to raise $20 million from investors, I'm not going to be able to start today and do that next week. That's a process that I need to begin today. And maybe I'll be able to raise $20 million in two or three or four years. And so when it comes to what you do first, you really have to do both. And this is, again, going back to multifamily as a team sport. Uh, It's nice having somebody like Ashley who literally spends full time um, and, and her team building relationships with brokers and getting deal flow. And again, she goes into a new market that might take many months to actually get some good deals coming. At the same time, me and my team are building those same relationships with investors. We're finding people that could potentially invest in our deals. We're telling them about us. We're building that level of trust so that when the deal comes along, they're willing to give us money. And so these things have to kind of work in parallel, um, because if you did them... Uh serially, if you did them one after the other, you'd be spending two years finding a deal and then two years raising the money, and that obviously doesn't make sense. Right. so so it really helps to have at least one person on the team that's focused on finding the deals, and at least one person on the team that's focused on raising the money.
2: Perfect, perfect
0: wow so so
1: so um so you're doing hundred fifty unit type buildings. So uh,
0: in the last year or the last couple of years, we've done everything from 152 units to 409 units. So uh, 150 is kind of our minimum, because once you get up uh, over about 120 units, you're making enough money from the property that you can afford full time property management. Um, You can afford to have uh, leasing agents on staff and on site. You can afford to have uh, maintenance people on site and on staff. Anything under about 100, 120 units, you're really in that no man's land where you can't afford full time leasing agents. You can't afford full time maintenance people. But if you have more than 20 or 30 or 40 units in that complex, you also need somebody that's there at least part time. And finding a part time leasing agent um, that just is available when they need to be available, finding a part-time maintenance person that's available for emergencies. That's a tough thing to do. And so what I found is managing these 20 to, let's say 80 or a hundred unit complexes is actually a lot harder than managing the 150 and above because the 150 above, you just hire full-time people and and they're there 20, not 24 seven, but nine to five, at least every day. And the maintenance people, maybe they're 24 seven.
2: All right, that's confirmation because I heard from... I forgot, I forgot their names, but Will Barrel the of Profits, they do multifamily. And that was the same exact thing they said. They said anywhere between that 20 to 100 units, you're in no man's land. It's hard to manage. And I'm and I'm sitting here, I'm trying to process it. I'm like, well, what's so hard to manage? You know, you get the stab, but then that's like you said, it's hard to because the finances don't work where you can have full-time staff and part-time staff just doesn't cut it so okay that's that's confirmation for me <laughs> so so, th- so since we're you know a RIA, right so a lot of we're
1: we're single family small multi-family right so mm-hmm. now there's this this mindset Right. You know, as we all started, right, when you started flipping houses, you're like, oh, my God, I'd never buy in a multifamily. So much money is different thinking. So now we're talking, hey, our audience is single family, small multifamily. We all have those dreams of going to 150 units plus. Like, so what's the what's kind of the thinking of the transition to getting there? Because it kind of sounds like uh, work smarter, not harder in a way.
0: Yeah. 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 So what I typically recommend if somebody wants to break into the multifamily space um, is, again, get good at one thing. And that one thing could be finding deals. That one thing could be doing underwriting. That one thing could be um, uh, learning how to do due diligence. It could be money raising. It could be learning how to, to raise debt. So being able to work with mortgage brokers and lenders to figure out debt terms. Um, it could be managing the assets. So we have these things in multifamily called asset managers. They're basically the CEO. They manage the business plan. Um, it could be the person that's responsible for doing the property management, whatever Whatever it is, get good at one thing and then go find a team that's already existing, a team that's already doing deals, but that needs that particular skill. Maybe a team that needs a better underwriter, maybe a team that needs somebody to help raise capital and say, Hey, I know I'm not like a partner here, but I'd like to come in and help you on your next deal or two or three. And I have expertise in this one area. And they'll hopefully say, Yeah, that's great. We need that expertise. They bring you in on a deal, you help them you get a piece of the equity that you get a a piece of of the the partnership that's running the deal. So you make some money, you provide your, your help. And while you're part of that team, you're learning the business, you get to see how a real deal operates. And then after a couple deals or one deal, two deals, five deals, however many it is, maybe you decide, okay, this is the team I want to be working with. And you end up, partnering with them in a more formal capacity, or maybe you go off and you start doing it yourself or you find other partners. That's how I started. When I approached Ashley and, and we decided to work together, basically the agreement was it's still her company and she's still running these deals, but she was bringing me in to help with those areas that I was really good at. Okay. And so for the first deal the first deal we did, basically she said, I'm gonna give you a few percent of, of, the, of the equity in the deal um, to help out in these small areas where you're good at. And it was only after that that we realized, okay, we work really well together. Maybe I should have a bigger role in the company. And that's when we part- partnered up. Uh, but start out as a, as a supporting role for somebody else's team. Get some experience. And then from there, start your own team or partner or do whatever it takes to, to move up, up in that, that kind of that hierarchy.
2: Okay. So you so you made something real clear, um, Jay. And I want to make sure everybody hear this this very clearly. What were some of the roles that people can go out and say so that that they can go out and learn how to be? You said like an asset manager,
0: you said underwriter. What were some of the other roles? Yeah, so finding the deals. So be the person that that builds relationships with brokers or or like reaches out to sellers or whatever it is get that deal flow and find the deals. And and that's kind of the hardest part of of this business between finding the deals and raising the money. Those are the two big things. If you can find deals, you can make a lot of money in this business and not necessarily work that hard. Basically, if somebody were to bring me a deal tomorrow um, that we really liked and that we ended up purchasing, we'd give them 10% of the the profits on the deal. We might give them a $100,000 commission if, if they prefer just to have the money up front. Um, and so if you can find a deal, bring it to me, I'll give you hundred thousand dollars or 10% of the deal, and then you can move on and you can do the, do it again, do that four okay. times a year and, and you can make seven figures pretty easily. Easy. Um, and so, um, so finding deals is a big one. Um, and then there are the, the harder skills, the, the more technical skills like underwriting and doing due diligence and building models and, and helping with, uh, market analysis and things like that. Uh, Then there's the raising money piece. And again, raising money is really tough. And so if you can raise money, if you have those relationships and you can build relationships with investors and you can bring a million or three million or five or ten million dollars to a deal, you become very valuable uh, to groups that might be really good at finding deals, but they don't have the money to take them down. Um, Or maybe you're good on the debt side. Maybe you're really good at, at working with uh mortgage brokers and lenders and you understand debt terms and and um and that's something that a lot of teams just don't have. They go to the mortgage broker and they say, okay, we we need a loan. And then the mortgage broker comes back, but they don't have the expertise to really analyze the options and figure out what the best loan is. They're just listening to that mortgage broker who's probably doing whatever is going to make him or her the, the biggest commission. So gotcha. maybe you really understand the, the debt stuff and you be, act as a consultant on the debt side. Um, Again, maybe, like you said, maybe you're the asset manager and you're the CEO of the deal. Um, or, I mean, there are people out there literally that just have super high net, net worth. They they're, they have a lot of money from whatever they were doing. Maybe they were somewhere in tech in, previously and they made $30 million, or maybe they've made it in, in real estate. When it comes to buying these large assets, we need really big loans. And typically for commercial loans... Um, it requires a high net worth and, and a high amount of cash in the bank. So if I wanted to get a $10 million loan tomorrow for an apartment complex, the bank's gonna look for three things. They're gonna look for um, whoever signs on that loan to have a $10 million net worth. So if it's $10 million loan, they're gonna to wanna to see $10 million net worth for the people that sign. And they're gonna to wanna to see at least 10% of that in liquid funds. So at least a million dollars in the bank. And then the third thing they're gonna to wanna to see is experience signing on these loans. If you go sign on a Fannie Mae loan, you need to have experience signing on Fannie Mae loans in the past. There are people out there who literally all they do is they join your team for the purpose of providing that net worth and that liquidity and that experience and signing on your loan. Wow. And mostly there's, most of these are non-recourse loans. So even if the deal goes south, even if the deal loses lots of money, they're not going to lose any money. So there's not a lot of risk for them. Um, obviously, if the deal goes bad, it's going to be harder for them to sign on loans in the future. So they want to make mm-hmm. sure that that's, it's a decent deal. But there's not a lot of financial risk for them. And so there are people that go around that will literally for 10% of a deal or 20% of a deal, they'll sign their name on a loan and then move on and, and, and go to the next project. Imagine doing that four or five or 10 times in a year, yeah. uh, and, and you can make a whole lot of money. So there's a lot of ways to play this kind of supporting role in this business, depending on what your your situation is and what your skills are, um, but get creative and, and go talk to, to groups that you know of and say, hey, where could I be of help? Maybe they'll say underwriting, and now you go and you spend a few months learning how to underwrite these deals. You come back and you say, okay, I'm ready to help you.
1: Excellent. So, question. so I know you said you focused on raising money. Um, kind of like leaning back towards like our our membership and everything. Um, what are some raising capital tips that you you can share?
0: Yeah, so um, the way I look at raising capital um, is is pretty simple. Um, it's, well, it's 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 simple. It's not easy, but it's simple. Um, mm-hmm. So we, we all have this idea. We all know what this, this funnel idea is where you, um, if anytime you want to sell something or, or, um, or or do transactions, you need this funnel on the top of the funnel, you get leads in at the top, and hopefully yep. you convert them at the bottom. And money raising is very much just building a funnel. And the top of that funnel is brand, you need to have a, as as good a brand as possible to attract people to the top of the funnel. You want people signing up for your newsletter. You want people subscribing to your podcast. You want people doing whatever you can do to get them to get in touch with you and basically give you their name, give you their email address, give you their phone number, because that's ultimately your lead list. And so building a strong brand is the best way to build that list of potential investors. At the bottom of the funnel, you have that conversion, getting people to actually give you money. Mm -hmm. To get people out of the bottom of the funnel, you need trust. So it's brand at the top of the funnel. You you get the most people at the top of the funnel by by having a great brand and attracting people to your brand. You get people to actually convert by building trust. People aren't going to invest with you unless they know, like, and trust you. And trust is the big one. They need to know that you're going to be a good steward of their their investment. Um, And so basically every step of that funnel is going from brand to trust. How can you build trust? What can you do to build trust? And typically that involves a few things. Number one, um, it allows, it it means getting people to, to know your authentic self. So a lot of people out there kind of have this persona in, in real Mm -hmm. estate. We've all seen the people with, with big personas. Um, and at the end of the day, do we trust somebody's persona or do we trust somebody because we feel like we really know them? And so what I like to tell people is if you're going to build up this big persona, um, you're probably not going to get people to invest with you unless you're yeah. really good at it. I mean, we know some people that are really good at it. Grant Cardone's a great example. He's got mm-hmm. this big persona, but he also gets people to invest. But most of us can't pull that off. We need mm-hmm. to be real people. We need to be relatable. We need to be um, somebody that people can look at us and say, yeah, I could, I could grab a beer with that, that person and, and be really comfortable. And that's a great way to build trust. Mm-hmm. Number two is you really need to, to communicate that you know what you're doing. So it, it's not just being flashy. It's not just showing that you've got big checks or cars or private planes, um, but instead showing that you have knowledge um, and that you have experience and you have a, a track record of success. Um, nobody cares, or at least I don't care, if somebody ha- has a million-dollar car. They could have rented the car. They could have borrowed the car. It doesn't tell me that they actually earned it. And even if they did earn it, it doesn't tell me, that doesn't tell me they earned it by by being smart and making good right, investments. Right. I want to know somebody smart and makes good investments. Um, And then number three, um, really that good communication. So we want somebody that's going to communicate with us over and over and add value to us. And so what I like to tell people is something as simple as put out a newsletter once a week. And in that newsletter, give information. Don't just pitch your deals. Don't just talk about yourself. Give information, give help to other people that might be reading the newsletter, because people are going to read that and say, okay, this person's giving and giving and giving. That's another great way to build trust. Um, So at at the end of the day, have have a brand, build a little bit of a brand, do what you can to get out on social media so you can attract people to your list. Um, and then Mm -hmm. use that list to build trust by just communicating and being authentic and and really providing value and and help to the people on the list. At the end of the day, people are going to say, "Ah, I like this person. I know this person. Now I trust this person. I'm willing to invest with that person. And so again, it's a long process. It can take months. It can take years. um, But if you can do that well, you'll be able to raise money.
1: It's great. I mean, yeah, man, that, that's, we got to keep this clip out and <laughs> <That's Yeah. laughs> raise money clip right there. So, so makes me think, right. I have a, a friend that buys like large mobile home parks and, you know, i was not in regards to raising money, but one thing he did say, since you're usually you're dealing directly with the owner at some level. And he's like, it takes me about a year before from meeting someone to actually buying the park to actually get it done so it breaks down into the brand all the way even to the authentic the knowledge communications it's all a part of it even on that end um so so going into the brand part obviously you had a lot of books in the background you know um so so how how did you transition from being jay and then working with bigger pockets and or w- w- how did that that all play out
0: So for me, um, I'm not a sales guy, not a marketing guy. I couldn't build a brand on purpose to save my life. (laughs) Um, I got lucky building my brand, but the way I did it, I believe is replicatable. I believe that if I had to start over, I would do exactly the same thing that I did last time, even though it's not a salesy or a marketing thing. Basically, what I did was I started giving away information. When mm-hmm. I started in 2008, uh, I had no idea what I was doing. But I decided eh, I'm, I'm one of the things that I'm, I'm really good at is teaching people hard concepts and making it seem pretty easy, um, breaking things down in, into to relatable terms. And so, in 2008, when I decided to get into flipping houses, I started a blog called One Two Three Flip dot and I decided for this blog I'm going to be completely transparent. And back then. There were plenty of Flipping Houses blogs, but basically they were pictures and they were people telling stories of awesome success. And and it was kind of like they would show the house on day one, and then they would show you a check on on day 60 of how much money Mm -hmm. they made. And I was like, I don't want to have that kind of blog. I want to have the type of blog where people can actually learn from it. And so I started basically um, documenting my flips and it would be like literally a day in the life of. And so every day I would take pictures and I would show like how renovation was going and I would talk about the struggles I was having with contractors and I would talk about how I was going over budget and I would talk about how I was going over schedule and I would talk about how contractors were stealing money from me and I would talk about how I overestimated the resale value of the property and all the bad things. I wasn't talking nope. about the good things. Everybody talks about the good things. I was talking about the bad things. And then at the end of every property, I would literally put in a spreadsheet that broke down the the profit to the penny. And where that money went? How much did I spend on on the 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 property? what were my closing costs? um a detailed breakdown of the renovation costs, how much I sold it for, what my commissions were? So people could see the real numbers. and instead of of thinking that every, everybody was making it seem like making they were making hundred thousand dollars on a flip, when you saw the real numbers and you realized there were a lot of expenses in there as well, they were saying I was making fifteen, sixteen, seventeen thousand dollars per flip. And people really started to follow this blog because they felt like they were getting a true, insightful view into how flipping worked. And I was the first person, I think, from what people tell me, that was actually really doing that. So I got a huge following by basically being willing to be more transparent than anybody else out there, uh, even with the bad stuff that was going on. And so people started following me and, and I never sold anything. It wasn't until... Um, 2013, five years later that I, I put out my first couple books. Um, and I think people liked the fact that I had built a big brand for five years, but I wasn't selling anything. And then when I was Mm -hmm. selling something, it wasn't a $10,000 or $50,000 course. It was a $20 book. Um, and then I never asked anybody for anything else besides, Hey, buy, buy the book. Um, until 2019, when I started raising money. And by that time I had this following that felt like, okay, we know this guy. We like yep. this guy. We trust this guy. He's never asked us for anything in the past. It's not like he's running a 15-year long con. Um, mm-hmm. if, if he's asking us to invest now, we're ready to invest. And so it was really easy for me to start raising money um, 10 years later because I had spent 10 years building the brand, getting the following, and then converting that following by by building trust. Wow. Sure. And- Go ahead,
1: Mike go ahead <laughs> um no, no it it's it all falls in line like with the authenticity that you're saying yeah. raising yeah. Me. um the tra- the transparency of the deals, right because uh much as I appreciate everything you know Grant Cardone has done right It's amazing, however, I think it attracts those people that just want to get rich quick yep and the in the in the people that you're attracting are like the people doing it. And they're in the works, they're in the trenches, they're trying to get better, they're trying to figure it out, and they can learn from you and, and apply it into real time life, you know? So that's awesome.
0: Yeah. I think a lot of people feel like I'm relatable. Um, I've had people come up to me and say, I'm, I'm investing with you because I like you. Yeah. Like I want to be friends. <laughs> yep. And I'm like, okay, great. And, and that's kind of what I go for. I'm not, I, again, I, I'm not a marketing guy. I couldn't create a persona if I wanted to. Um, I'm just myself. And and I, I highly recommend that everybody just be authentic because yeah. um, as long as we're decent people, um, there are going to be a lot of people out there that like us if we're authentic.
2: And, and that's, yeah. that's one of the things that I wanted to bring up was, yeah, Jay, you built a brand, but it really wasn't a brand. You was just building yourself. You was just building your company and letting people behind the scenes see exactly what it takes to build a company. You wasn't showing... You know, flashy cars, you know, hopping on private jets. You were saying, you know what? I got screwed by my contractor this week. And next week, guess what? I got screwed again, but I'm going to stay the course and I'm going to continue doing this because this is exactly what I want to do. And it's that level of persistence and stick to it, you know, stick to itiveness. I just created a word. Uh, <laughs> that that really works, and that's what people really want to see. So, although it's not a brand, it is a brand because it's you. You are the brand, and the brand is you. Versus, like you said, creating some some persona that you have to live up to.
0: Yep, a hundred percent. And and so, it it's something that it's funny because I'm an introvert, so I have to still work at at building this relatable brand because I'd be perfectly happy to just go sit in a corner on my computer all day and never do podcasts and never go to meet up events and never talk to anybody um, because that's kind of my mentality. But I have to force myself to get out of my comfort zone. Mm -hmm. I have to force myself um, to to constantly put myself out there because that's part of building a brand. And so you can be authentic, but sometimes you still have to do things outside of your comfort zone. Um, we did a networking event last week. I, I decided I'm in Sarasota and lots of investors around here. So I just kind of said, let's do a, a networking event. And yeah, there was, there was some selfish reasons behind it. I have a coaching group. And so I was hoping people would come out and learn about that. And um, I was hoping maybe investors, potential investors would come out and they they would invest. But at the end of the day, I just, I like doing these kind of networking events where people can meet and greet and talk to each other. And I can talk to people and Um, again, build the reputation, build trust. And what I found was in this group in Sarasota, I had two people that literally drove down from Atlanta for a two-hour networking event. So they did an eight-hour drive for a two-hour event. I had one guy that flew down from New Jersey, and I had another guy that flew in from Minnesota for a two-hour networking event that basically I just said, hey, let's get together and chat and and eat some food and, and drink and and hang out. And I, I rented a room at a, at a local hotel. And people were literally coming from around the country to like a, attend this thing. And it was kind of eye opening for me because it made me realize, okay, people actually really do want to meet me and they really do like, they trust me. And so I thought that was really, really cool. And, and so I guess my point there is if I can do it, just some normal guy who's an introvert, like anybody out there can do that if, if they put in the time and the effort.
1: Well said. Yep. Well said. This is a great podcast, man. So, so, but we do have to start wrapping it up here, Marcus.
2: Yep. Yep. Go ahead. Start the wrap up,
0: man.
1: Start the wrap up, Jay. Uh, <laughs> man, thank you for being here, man. Um, hey, Yeah. How do we get a hold of you? How do we get to know more about, about you? How do we give you, bring you that uh, 10%? How do we get that 10% on that deal? We got a 100, 150 units for you.
0: Yeah. So if anybody wants to get in touch with me, if you go to www.connectwithjscott.com, uh, that's my link tree so it has all my links my emails in there my websites in there my business is in there my blogs and books are in there anything you want to find out um, so feel free to shoot me an email or or whatever I'm always happy to connect with anybody
2: love it man. sounds great all right okay. as Ria family let's let's bombard Jay's inbox but please be respectful um, mm-hmm. he is a very very busy man he's Out actually doing deals. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But if you have questions, you want to reach out to Jay, just go ahead and reach out to him. I'm gonna definitely reach out to him. It's always a pleasure, Jay, talking with you. You know, we have done this a couple of times over the internet, a couple of times in person at BP cons, man. And it's, it's always a wealth of information. I can sit at your table, man, and eat from what you're feeding at any time. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks guys.
2: Thank All you. Right. Thank you guys so much. Have a good day.
1: Thanks for listening to the Azria show with your hosts, Marcus Maloney and Mike Delpreet. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you found this information valuable, head over to Ezria.org and learn more about our community.